So Philippians uh, chapter 4, as you know, our mission's emphasis weekend is coming up uh, this next weekend. And uh, my two Sundays, as I've seen it, uh, speaking to you before the missions weekend is to really just get our minds and, and our hearts thinking about our role, uh, Austerville Baptist Church, as being a sending church, and that was the focus last week, and now today a caring church, uh, especially for our missionaries. So we want to not only be missions-minded who support missionaries, but really what we want to move toward, and it'll take time, it'll take a few years, trust me, but to move to be a strong sending church who sends their own flesh and blood, their own members, and then becomes a deeply caring church uh, for those who are uh, on the field. Now, we want and we know that if we've been in the church very long, uh, an evangelical church or a believer very long, that missionaries face a lot of challenges, especially those who go to another field, another country, uh, in their cross-cultural ministry. Brings on a lot of stresses. Think about it for a minute. Raising support. It normally takes these days about three years for a missionary to get the support they need from churches and individuals in order to go uh, to the field. Imagine if it were you. Now you're going to leave your family, mom, dad, uh, brothers, sisters, extended family, church family that we love, and you're going to be gone, and you might not come home for a few years. Then we've got culture shock. Once you get in another land, trust me, I don't know of any missionary, I don't know of any who haven't experienced culture shock. And then oftentimes, most of the time, learning a new language. Uh, the first term of a missionary, really, you shouldn't expect anything more than hopefully they'll learn the language. The worst thing you can do is when a missionary comes off the first term of service and ask them how many churches they planted or how many people they led to the Lord. Good grief alive. They're just trying to be able to communicate and learning a new language is not an easy thing. And then, of course, there's the transitioning from the field back to home assignment every few years. So all of that can make you feel like you're climbing Mount Everest, and you got this backpack on, and it's loaded with heavy bricks. Now, most churches who send their choice servants to a mission agency for deployment, they often assume that the mission organization has a pastoral care department. Most of them do. On the other hand, some don't. And then you've got the organization's who often assume that the sending church will provide pastoral care uh, for the missionaries. And sometimes, in the end, no one provides that. So we all need to work together to ensure that the harvest workers themselves continue to be nurtured, loved, and cared for. Now, this is where the local church can step in. And we can start going to that missionary and lift one brick by another out of his backpack, out of her backpack, and start uh, lifting the load for him. 
So if last Sunday we looked at Acts 13, we saw the church at Antioch. Personally, I view the church at Antioch as the model church for being a sending agency or sending church. But if I were to choose a model church for who would qualify to be a caring church, a model church for that, I think I would have to say uh, the church at Philippi, uh, the Philippian church. So I hope you're in uh, Philippians 4. We're just going to see two basic points this morning and then a few points under that. And this will all be on the screen for you. But the first one is the spiritual demands requiring care. What I call the spiritual demands that are requiring care on uh, the slide. And the first example we come to are the experiences of the Apostle Paul. Uh, hopefully we'll get those slides moving up there for you so you can follow along a little bit easier. So under this whole thing of what are the demands that require that pastoral care be provided? First of all, we want to look at Paul himself because the Apostle Paul in this case uh, is the missionary, all right? And so uh, if you hear his own words, his own testimony, we're not reading into it. We're simply letting Paul uh, express what he experienced as a missionary going out. So 2 Corinthians 7, 5 to 7 says, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. Then you move a couple of chapters and you go to chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians 23 to 28. He says, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. How's that for being humble, right? Now, don't think of humility of just saying, oh, I'm just a nobody, I can't do anything, okay? Humility also provides an honest assessment of what God is doing through you. And Paul wasn't being arrogant. He was simply stating a fact. Do they claim that they've suffered? Well, let me tell you what suffering is, is, is involved. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. How'd you like that to be your testimony? Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, the Jews, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship. Through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from these other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Now, that's Paul writing in his own handwriting, telling us what he experienced as a missionary. Now, if you get more into the context of Philippians, uh, I did an exercise this week of reading through Philippians. And then I would start taking a couple notes of what he experienced just in relationship to his ministry at the Philippians. Uh, 
You're going to see the conflicts that Paul endured. For instance, he talks about in chapter 1, verse 7, his imprisonment. When he wrote the book of Philippians, he was in prison in Rome. He would be there for about two years. He'd be released, and then he'd go back to prison again. And his last imprisonment, he was going to be beheaded uh, with his own crime, having faith uh, in Christ. Now, if you go as a tourist to Rome, it's not on the tourist trap list. But if you ask the guy, take you to the maritime prison, you can go and you can actually see, you'll walk down quite a few steps, and it's like a cave down there, and you can see the prison. And you can just stand there and meditate a little bit on what Paul experienced. Now, I'm a little partial to prison ministry, you understand. Been doing it for 57 years, all right? Now, did you know that out of this awful prison uh, time that Paul was there, that he wrote four books of the Bible? He wrote Ephesians. He wrote Philippians. He wrote Colossians. And he wrote Philemon. No wonder he said, but I would that you would understand, brethren, that the things that have happened unto me have fallen out rather for the furtherance of the gospel, chapter 1, verse 12. And so a lot of good things came out, but that's another sermon. So he was in prison. Personal affliction, chapter 1, verse 17. Care of the flock, 127. Personal conflict, 130. Grumbling church members. Grumbling church members, 2.14. Sickness unto death of fellow workers like Epaphroditus, chapter 2. False doctrine, backslidden Christians, divisiveness. These are some of the demands on Paul's life which required care. Thought just came to me, I hope I can remember it. There are three things that made Paul weep and weep. See this aged apostle. And see him, tears flowing down his cheek. What made him weep? Lost people. Teachers of false doctrine. And carnal Christians. Now, he might have wept over a lot more things, but those are the three things he did say in his scriptures, things that I wept over. Paul went through a lot. And then divisiveness. So these were some of the demands on Paul's life. But I'm glad to read chapter 4, verse 10. I really like it. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length, after all these afflictions, now at length you have revived your concern for me. They were a caring church. We'll come back to that later. But what about missionaries today? We went back 2,000 years, traveled with Paul and his journey. What about experiences of missionaries today? Missionary families endure the same issues in life just like you and your family. You and your spouse ever have arguments? You ever have tension in the home? You ever go to bed at night and your one's not talking to the other and the other moves a little bit farther over on the other side of the bed? You get to toss and turn all night because you haven't resolved a conflict. You got conflict with children? So do missionaries. There's all kinds of issues. Some marriages of missionaries don't survive. Some of them have, I know, I know some missionaries personally, very personally, even some extended family that have had children, grown children commit suicide or have had attempted suicide. Imagine the burden that brings to you. 
And there you are trying to serve the Lord and you've lost a child or almost lost one. Some missionaries need help. They're addicted to drugs. They're addicted to pornography. They got some deep emotional problems. You don't throw them away. You don't cast them away. You help them. You minister to them. You try to revive them. Most of them don't have a safe place to go because they're afraid if they share some of their deepest struggles, even with a member of the pastoral care of the organization, they might lose their position and be sent home. So they just keep it in. And all of them think they live in a glass house. Everybody's watching every minute they make. And they expect that they will not walk to the church, but they will fly to the church because they have angels' wings. They're perfect. They don't have any problem. They don't have... I remember being down in Suriname among the Wyani Indians back in the interior back in 1978 or 79. It's over 40 years, 45 years ago. And I remember when I got down there, Ivan and Doris took their two, three, four-year-old children back into these very um, primitive Indian tribe called the Wyani Indians. And I remember the first few times there, I'm looking at their house, it's up on stilts, and it's all glass that you can see inside. What's going on? And then I'd look out the window, and I'd see all these Indians just huddled out there around, talking, but watching everything going on in the house. I thought, well, that's kind of creepy. <laughs> and I asked Ivan, I said, Why, what, do you have any kind of privacy? And he says, we do that on purpose. I said, Why? He says, we want them to see what a, how a Christian husband treats his wife, how the wife responds to the husband, the parents, and the children. We want them to see that. Then and after he broke the scriptures down into a translation, and he could teach them along the way about the family. And then they're thinking, yeah, I've seen that. I've seen the way you've, you've lived. But they live in that kind of environment, and it can be a very stressful one, to say the least. The missionary over the years faces death, disease, and danger. Have you ever heard the term one-way missionary? If you haven't, you're going to learn it this morning. It'll take about a minute or two. What's a one-way missionary? Well, they took a coffin, and you can see the coffin there, one of them, which they packed their belongings in. They didn't take suitcases. So everything they were going to take over to the field, especially in Africa... And Wycliffe became very involved in this. They packed all their belongings in a casket, and they bought one-way ticket on the ship. Why did they do that? Why did they take the coffin? Because they didn't expect to come home. That's why. And so they call them the one-way missionaries, and they understood the implications of Jesus' call to take up your cross and follow me. That was and is a call to not deny self even unto death. The only thing that, that it means to take up your cross is be willing to die. That's what it means. A cross means a death. It was a horrible instrument of death. Of course, we wear them on our necklaces all the time. And you can see why it's a very offensive thing to some people. Because that was a, it was like wearing an electric chair around your neck today. It's an instrument of death. And yet when Jesus called us to take up a cross, it was death he was 
talking us to for the ultimate sacrifice. Now, the dangers have changed over the years, and today's missionaries face a different kind of uh, suffering. Uh, back 100 years ago, if you went and you got malaria, you might die. You might get this disease and that disease. Today, they're able to uh, many times uh, solve that problem ahead of time. But today, what is it? It's being taken hostage, held in a cap, uh, kidnapping, having their cars hijacked. Catherine Long, a historian at Wheaton College in Illinois, she just wrote, traffic accidents kill more missionaries than violence. Now, if you've ever driven in Hyderabad, India, you understand that. Or a few other, I mean, just like a, a, a mad people over there. Then as I'm working on this message for the last few weeks, I'm reminded of an email, and I went back in my files from a few years ago uh, with our director, Nisibiat Matthew, our good news director um, in Nigeria. And um, he wrote this email to me, and this is his family. Uh, by the way, uh, his name Nisibiat, you'll forget it. You won't forget that little baby's in the, in the arms of her mom. You'll never forget her name. You know what, what, his, what his name is, the little baby? They named him Fletcher. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, you just don't get a bigger honor than that, my friend. I got Fletcher over there. I want to get back to Nigeria before I get to heaven. I really do. And uh, we commune, but I want to see that little he, Now he's about seven, eight years old. And, uh, but anyway, I'm going to read you a letter I got from him back then before Fletcher was born. And she was pregnant with another child. Hello from Nigeria. Last night was a very terrible one as thieves broke into our house and did so many terrible things. They came in around 1.30 a.m. and requested for money. And in fact, I didn't have much except 150 U.S. dollars, which I kept and put aside to take my mother-in-law for better health care to the hospital. Well, I took that amount and I gave it to them and they were demanding more. And that was all that I have. After severe beatings on me and my wife, can you imagine that? You can handle the beatings, men. Can you imagine seeing your wife get beaten and living through that? After severe beatings on me and my wife, they went into my bedroom where I used to keep my laptop, and they took it in the printer with phones in the house, and they all left. Early this morning, I rushed and took my wife to the hospital for medical care. She lost our baby. That's how severe the beating was. And my mother-in-law, too. They didn't lay hands on the children. Be praying for me. This is my first experience of this kind of situation. Keep me and my family in your prayers safe. What do they need? They need care and support at a time like this. They need a safe place to go. You say, well, that's an isolated thing. No, it's not. No, it's not. We've been there. We've come around the road, and then there's the military people with their machine guns and their after money, you better have something. You can read about, just Google Northern Nigeria Christianity. That's all you have to do, Google it. You can read story, story after story after story today where this very type of thing is going on. That's just Nigeria. It goes on and on. Let's move from the spiritual demands requiring care. We saw Paul's experiences and the experience of missionaries today. Now, what are the distinctives of revealing care? This is a, a year-long series of messages combined into one Sunday. You understand that? So I'm just, you talk about hitting the surface. I am hitting the surface of the service. 
okay? Now, I want to say, how do you, how do you, would you define, how would you picture in your mind what a caring church or caring family or caring person like you would do for your missionary to show that care? Well, the first thing I have down and probably would be the first thing on your mind too, how do we provide care for our missionaries? How is that revealed? I'd say, first of all, by persevering prayer. Persevering prayer. Why do I say that? Because it's the greatest need. Ask any missionary what their greatest need is. They've got other needs. What their greatest need is. And they will tell you, and I will speak personally, persevering prayer. Drop my support. Let the finances go. Let this go. They're all needed. But the one thing that you please don't take away is your prayer support. Because God seldom moves in the affairs of men apart from intercessory prayer. I hope you get that down. You say, well, I'm not doing much. I just pray. What do you mean I just pray? Your missionary tell you that's the greatest thing you can do. And then if there are other needs, you can list those under your prayer in your, in your prayer journal. First thing I did when I had to raise my support, and I was pretty much a spoiled kid serving as a pastor. But when I went back with good news in 1990, I had to raise my support. What did I do first? I formed a prayer support team. I still got, I get the best prayer support team that I, I know of anybody. I send them a prayer letter quarterly that enables them to know what I'm doing, what's going on, what the needs are. And then about once or twice a year, usually something comes up and it's, 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 it's a strong thing. And you say, boy, I really need prayer for that. And you send out, I don't want to say an emergency, but yeah, an emergency email and say, please, would you engage in prayer right now for this? I was reflecting and I was thinking back in 2010, when we were invited, uh, the, our director of training and I were in Gurjanwala, Pakistan. Now that's uh, Cam Abel. That's our director of training. Obviously a great teacher. Graduate of Dallas Seminary. Uh, been with Evantel years before he joined us. He's traveled with me to 25 countries. Everybody loves Cam. He's one of the most meek, gentle, gracious, spiritual, kind men I've ever known. A very sensitive man. And we were invited over, and a third person was going with us, and that third person was told after their elders prayed from their church and the family prayed, they said, do not go to Pakistan. Don't you do that. And so he didn't go. Cam and I felt we had the green light. I should say it was a yellow blinking light probably. But anyway, we had enough freedom that we said, yeah, let's go, let's, let's, let's do it. And so we do the training of how to be a prison minister. Now, most of these, these men and women are pastors, and so they got Bible and theological, but they don't know how to be a chaplain. And if you don't know how to be a chaplain in a prison, you can be tossed out on your ear the first day. There's do's and don'ts about that. But I remember on the final day of training, and I'm so grateful it was the final day because we got all the training done. But we are, after lunch, we are going to have what we call kind of our celebratory time. You give out the diplomas and the recognition and the thanks and all, blah, blah, you know, just kind of an uplift and prayer and sending them off to serve the Lord. And, uh, uh, and right before the, we are going to begin there, the director brought the director of security from Pakistan. He said he wants to talk to you. And I said, okay. And so uh, he says, uh, uh, I've got bad news for you. 
he says, you must close down immediately. And he says, uh, there's a credible threat against your lives. Now, we are up in Gurdjian Wall. <laughs> we stood out like a sore thumb, okay? I mean, only two non-Pakistanis. And so as an American in Pakistan, you're not exactly the greatest friend. And what had happened, I found out later, I didn't know it. But some uh, militant uh, Islamists came across the Afghanistan border, and they started exciting all the Muslims in the local uh, mosques there and firing them up. And then I noticed in the hotel I was staying at, as well as the one we were holding the, the uh, training in, that you'd see screens just like that, TV screens. And I, I couldn't hear, I couldn't understand what they're saying. I couldn't read the Arabic, or not the Arabic, but the native language. But I could see an American, and he was an American pastor. And you may remember back a few years ago, he's from Florida, and the word spread throughout the world. He was going to publicly burn the Koran. Great way to show love for your Muslim friends. We're going to learn about that next Saturday. I hope you'll come to the seminar. We don't want you to be afraid of Muslims. Some of the greatest wonderful people I've had to talk with about Christ are Muslims. You just got to be wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove. But anyway, that picture of burning the Koran as an American was the thing that just kind of added spark to the gas, fire and fuel. And that's why they said, you got to get out of town. He said, my police will take you back in our security vehicle to your hotel, and then we'll take you to the hotel, uh, to the airport the next morning for your flight. So what do you do? You don't know what to do. So you go to your national director. You say, tell me what's going on here. What, what do we do? I'll never forget. Babar, he says, you do not go with them. You don't know where they're going to take you, and you don't know what they're going to do to you. We'll take care of you, and we'll get you to the airport as well. I said, That's all I need to know. Thank you very much, Mr. Director of Security. Uh, we're taken care of. And I've got pictures when we're leaving that hotel to go to the other. I've got pictures uh, of they were demonstrating outside of our training and the talks about uh, blessed are those who behead Christians and uh, different things like that. And so we got back and he took us, we went after a room and Cam wanted to know if he could stay in my room and said, of course, but there's something about when Jesus sent him out in twos, you don't like to be alone at a time like that. Uh, just something about one other person with you. And so uh, he took us in the room, and then he says, you lock the door, you put the bolt on it, you don't open it for anybody, we'll be back at 4 o'clock in the morning, we'll take you to the airport. And uh, so thank you very much. What do you think was the first thing I did when, when we got in our room? I opened my laptop, and I fired off a prayer request to whom? Our prayer support team. And I just got bing, 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 back and forth, people on their knees praying, interceding for us. Next morning, we got on the plane, and we, everything moved smoothly through the airport and everything. And uh, before, well, the, the night before, I remember Cam said to me, he said, uh, you know, the good thing here is the safest place to be is in the will of God. <laughs> I said, I don't want to be a... Spread or bad news can, but that's not a true statement. It's not the safest place to be. Otherwise, why would Jesus and the apostles be killed? They were in the will of God, right? Or persecuted like we read about Paul. I said, it's the best place to be in the will of God. 
And whether I live or whether I die, I am the Lord's. That's the idea. So it's not the safest place, but it's the best place because God's in control. Well, that encouraged his heart a whole lot. <laughs> but then when we got on the airplane, I just, I remember saying to Cam something like this. I said, do you think a lot about the great sovereignty of our great God? And do you wonder how things might have turned out if we didn't have the intercessory prayer from all those people? Now, I can't answer that question. I, I'm not smart enough to answer it theologically or biblically. I don't know the answer to it. What I do know is this, and I think it gives me the answer, is God seldom moves in the affairs of man without intercessory prayer. You got an unsaved son or a granddaughter or a friend or a husband or a wife. God seldom moves in the affairs of men apart from intercessory prayer. Make sure you're in tune with God. Make sure you hear God. Make sure you talk to God. Make sure you keep a prayer list and you pray for these burdens that God moves on your heart. And don't give up praying. If you need to, pray for another 50 years. Be a persevering prayer warrior. It's a good time to talk about the faith promise for prayer that you're going to be introduced to next week again. We introduced it for the first time last year. And what is a faith promise for prayer? It's a commitment you make. What's the commitment? Out there on the board, there's going to be pictures of all of our missionaries. There's just one couple. And God's going to put on your heart to pray for the missionaries. Now, listen, you may pray for just one missionary. One missionary day, you take them on as your, your, as your burden to pray for for the next year. Or you could take two. Some of you, and maybe some watching live streaming, might be shut in, not able to get out. You wonder, can I have a ministry? You can't have a greater ministry than this. And so you sign up, and then you put it back on the board, and then you take another one just like it, and you take that home, and you put it in your Bible like I do. And then when you open your Bible, everything, first thing in the morning, you got that prayer card in there, and they're on your prayer list. Then what happens after the uh, missions emphasis weekend? The office takes all those prayer requests down, and then they send them off to the missionary. Can you imagine being discouraged or even being threatened or being in danger? And all of a sudden in the mail, you get 30, 40 people here who have signed up to pray for them, and they open up, and there's 30, 40 cards saying, I'm praying for you every day. Can you imagine what in the world that does for you? And what an encouragement and shot in the arm that's going to be for you. And so that's what prayer commitment uh, is all about. And what I love about the faith promise for prayer, one of the things I love about it, is that it's for everybody. If you've got a little child, five years old, they can pray. 12-year-old, a teenager got a senior citizen here, you can pray. Everybody can get involved. It's church-wide. It's for everybody. We want total involvement in this. And it'll be a blessing to you, I guarantee you. I hope you'll consider that. Now let's move on to the second spiritual distinctive revealing care, not only persevering prayer, but personal provisions. Listen to what Paul writes in Philippians 4, 10 to 13. Paul had learned contentment in the Lord, no matter what the situation was in which he found himself. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. 
You were indeed concerned for me. You had no opportunity now. Not that I speak in, of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Isn't that powerful? Isn't that good? Paul was saying this. If I don't have one prayer warrior, and if I don't have one person showing me care, and nobody loves me, and I'm all alone, God has given me everything I need to be content in the Lord. Now, that's a wonderful truth, isn't it? I can eat T-bone steak, and I can eat peanut butter every day. I can live in the palace, or I can live in the prison. Anything and everything, God is my sufficiency. God is faithful. That's what we want to grow in. God is faithful. God means what he says. God wants to talk to me. God wants me to talk to him. It's a growing personal relationship. And hopefully we're growing deeper and deeper in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ as we get older. But I'm so glad the Holy Spirit led him to add verse 14. Because up to this time, what do I see? I see a sufficient Paul by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what I see. No matter what comes this way, the God is going to be his sufficiency. And that's true. But then he adds this little nugget. Yet, verse 14, it was kind of you to share my trouble. That is, to me, is I just love that so much. Because Paul needed that too. So Paul was in prison when he wrote this letter. And even though he expressed the faithfulness of God, he said, I really appreciated that you shared with me in my distress. Have you ever been so deeply distressed and had a need in your life that you felt all alone? And your heart was just broken. You felt everything was taken out of you. That happened to us. Not once, not twice. But I remember recently, a couple from this church. No phone call, no text, nothing. They were there. Made a difference. So personal provisions. The greatest thing is just flesh and blood, right? Someone putting their arms around you, giving you a hug and say, we love you. We're praying for you. But sometimes it's sending a gift. And that's what Paul talks about here. Not only sent him, but they sent the gift to Paul when he was in prison, but sent Epaphroditus from the church, who was so sick he was nigh to death, and he brought the gift into Paul in prison. Imagine that. What that meant to Paul. How does he describe it? Three ways, and I'll move very quickly here. A flourishing tree, verse 10. First, it's a flourishing tree. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Back in the old King James Version, it talks about being a flourishing plant. 
The ESV says, you have revived your concern for me. It literally means to sprout. It means to blossom again. Often we go through the winter season spiritually, but then spring arrives. And we know what that's like on the Cape. And all of a sudden we start looking for the leaves to start coming. And spring is here and uh, there's new life and there's blessing. Have you noticed? The tree is not moved. Have you noticed? The circumstances around the tree haven't changed. The difference is the new life within. So with you, the tree hasn't moved. You're still here. The circumstances you're still facing. But there's the flourishing of the new life within. If you don't give to the work of the Lord... And I'm not talking just finances here, though this is contextually dealing with a financial gift. You're choking out the life that wants to bring forth the fruit. That's called by Paul, you're quenching the spirit. God wants to grow new life in you and me every day. Don't quench him. God's going to bring suffering into your life. Don't resist it. When suffering comes, welcome it as not an intruder into your life, but as a friend sent by the grace of God. For though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things he suffered. And the only way... There's going to be new life growing in you is through the trials, the te testings, and the sufferings of life. We need to ask God to bring forth the springtime in our lives so we're flourishing spiritually. Secondly, a fruitful investment. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I, speak the, I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your gift. Oh, I love that. I do a lot of fundraising for good news jail and prison ministry. And I love the servant heart that comes out of Paul as he is grateful for their missionary gift and not just for what he received from it. This is what I like. But for the fact that their investment would pay them eternal spiritual dividends. And that's where I can be a phony. I want in my deep, deepest part of my heart, I want to be genuine. I want when I talk to a person who is thinking of supporting the country of Nigeria or Siberia or Venezuela or wherever it is that we're talking about, I want to present it in such a way, I don't need your money, they don't need your money, but you need to give because when you give, you're going to reap the eternal investment. That is being made today through the work of the people that you're supporting. A flourishing tree, a fruitful investment. We think we're divesting ourselves of money when we give and once it leaves our hands. And we think it has no connection to us tomorrow or 10,000 years from today. And we couldn't be more wrong. Martin Luther said it well. 
I have held many things in my hands, and I have lost them all. But whatever I have placed in God's hands, that I still possess. So, what do you do? You look at my ball to eyeball and say, thank you for your investment. And I can only say this, as much as I appreciate it, that pales. Nothing to that. Not much, not much to that. But I envision you standing before the judgment seat of Christ. And I envision the Lord Jesus Christ all of a sudden bringing a whole bunch of former inmates in Siberia and down in El Salvador and over in Estonia and down in Egypt and over in Nigeria. And I see all these people in heaven who got saved in prison. And Jesus looking at this donor and saying, there's the fruit of your investment. Do you get it? Because the money they gave enabled a chaplain in those countries to go in and preach the gospel. And maybe without that chaplain, that person would never have been saved. I don't know. And now this person is receiving the fruit of their gift. A flourishing tree, a fruitful investment. Lastly, illustration he uses is a fit sacrifice. Verse 18, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, sitting in a prison dungeon. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. The words fragrant offering and sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. These are related to the Old Testament two kinds of sacrifices that you read about in Leviticus. One is a blood sacrifice, the emphasis of the atonement for your sins and trespasses. The other gifts are the non-bloody sacrifices, and these are the ones the worshiper of Israel would simply bring uh, uh, to the tabernacle or the temple, and he would simply offer them up uh, through the priest to God as a thanksgiving love offering. Lord, you've done so much for me. I love you so much. This is my gift to you. And that's how Paul, it's the second one, this one here, a thank offering, a love offering that he pictures uh, what this worshiper is doing and what you and I are doing every time we give a gift in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Give generously. Save responsibly. Steward wisely. Here's the third spiritual distinctive revealing pastoral care and I'll close. Persevering prayer is the first. Personal provisions, a flourishing tree, a fruitful investment, a fit sacrifice, and now pastoral presence. One of the things that makes a missionary feel most cared for is when their own pastor and wife or someone in a shepherding role for them visit, specifically to provide encouragement and learn about their context and their lives. It speaks volumes when someone comes to visit without expectations of being a tourist, but genuinely desires to understand and help the missionary. I jumped for joy when I learned down south that Osterville Baptist was sending Rob and Katie uh, to Togo, Africa. I know they learned much from the missionary team on the field, and shared it with you that should encourage you, but just think of the encouragement they were to that national church and to Josh and Ashley Freeman, who just were catapulted into leading the whole team over there in Togo. 
Can you imagine that joy? These, I look at Josh and Ashley, I think they're kids. You know, it's because I'm old. But they are kids. 20s, and now they got leadership of the team. Can you imagine when they're just having a hard time saying, who's sufficient for these things? And you go to the airport and down the corridor, you see Rob and Katie coming. Oh, man. Can you imagine what that does to their heart? Somebody cares. There's a church that cares. And it's Rob and Katie. If you got to send one, send Katie, keep Rob back here. <laughs> Joke. It's Rob and Katie, and coming with their smile, giving them a hug. <sighs> Somebody really cares. So just imagine being on the field, and all the excitement of the first few weeks and months are gone. You miss your family. You miss your church family. You miss the USA. You miss shopping at Stop and Shop. You miss going to Delsa's beach, and you're wondering, how in the world did I ever get in this place? Did I make the right decision? Bring my wife, my kids? Then Rob and Katie come and bring greetings and love from your church. Let me say to you elders here, especially missions and the entire congregation, and I can do this because I can get away with anything now. You know why? Paul Gage told me so. I mean, Paul uh, told me so. You know what Paul told me? And now that you're 80 years old, you can say anything you want to say. <laughs> so let me just say, as an 80-year-old man, about being a caring church, there's no greater vivid demonstration of that than sending your pastor and wife. Why do I emphasize the wife? Because Women, can you imagine how the, how the missionary's wife feels when she sees the pastor's wife? Women relate to women differently than men to women, right? And then can you imagine how about those single female missionaries on the team when they see a woman? And what about those national women in Togo? You know, sometimes you women are just a piece of property to a husband in many of these countries. You're just something to be used. And when they see Rob, Katie interacting, just imagine what a blessing that is. I hope you build it into your budget every year to send Rob and Katie to some mission field. Every year. They need it, and the missionaries need it, and the nationals need it as well. A new missionary couple who were in Togo for just under a year expressed their appreciation for Rob and Katie with statements like these, and I'm, I'm choosing their words, not mine. This place finally feels like home. What's that tell me? It tells me they experienced culture shock because they are in a strange area. Number two, I feel useless sometimes. Well, why wouldn't you? You can't communicate in their language. You can't teach. You can't evangelize. I feel useless. Three, people contacted me regularly for the first three months, but then it got dark and silent. And then here comes Rob and Katie. 
Have you communicated with any? Just a question. Not a guilt trip, just a question. Have you emailed a missionary? Have you written them? Have you sent them a gift? Have you done anything? Have you prayed for them? Have you let them know you're praying for them? Just a question, that's all. We'll be challenged next week. Let's continue that ministry, church, and make it an annual investment that demonstrates we're a caring church. It's the body, Jew, we're a caring church. Father in heaven, thank you for this time together with the flock of God. Uh, increase our love and compassion for world evangelism, for the lost, for the missionaries, for the national church. May your name be glorified, in whose name we pray, amen.